Good morning. Oh, thank you. Uh, and, and my congratulations to every last one of you that actually made it here on time, despite the time change demons that haunted your life this morning. I, I mean, that was, uh, it takes courage, and, and uh, actually, I wouldn't have made it on time had it not been for my smartwatch, who remembered, to for, you know, when I usually, anyway, I'm just saying. And while we're talking about time change, you see what I did there? That was like a... Uh, while we're talking about time change, uh, you may have noticed that, I, I mean, church typically runs from 10 to 11, right? I mean, that's the, what we kind of look for, which means that if we start before 10 or end after 11, uh, some people who are really devoted to their watches uh, uh, may, may find it uh, difficult. Uh, so here's what's been happening over the last few months. We've been starting at five minutes to 10 or at least the worship team is up here, and that's an effort to get you to move from out there into here, from the For What It's Worth department. Uh, we still haven't found the, the key to actually getting you to move from out there into here, but we're going to pretend that that's what gets that done. So when you hear them up here, and you know it's five minutes to ten, don't think that they're, they're, they're cheating you somehow. They're, it's an extra song that they've added, and uh, they're just glad to have you show up so that at ten, when worship happens... Uh, we're, we're all here remembering that Jesus taught that the Father is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we want to be able to say as a congregation that when he looks on a Sunday morning at, at uh, 10 o'clock here in the central time zone, uh, that, that he's going to find us when he looks for people that are, that are worshiping in spirit and in truth. The other part of that story is less fun for you, I'm sure, but uh, typically, we've gone from 10 to 11, and uh, we, we had a conversation with the elders. Uh, you guys are really busy. I mean, you're, there, there are ministries that are working, and there are people that are going to the mission field on short-term trips, and, and there's the Michaela Hagans of the world, and all of that. And, and all of that takes time when we recognize it. But we want you to know how God is using you around the world. And as we stack those things up, uh, the time that I have to come up here, or Brian has to come up here, or Jason, or whoever's speaking on a Sunday morning, um, it gets pushed back to the point where, you know, when it's 11 o'clock, um, that's when I start to panic, and sometimes we'll just kind of zip down to the bottom of the message, which I'm sure you like if you're getting to church, but it, anyway, what I'm saying is the new ending time for church will now be 2.15. <laughs> No, see, if I say it like that, then you're, gonna, you're not going to feel as bad when I say 11.15. 11.15 is, we'll, is when we'll actually finish. And so I, we may not go that long. I will not plan to go that long. But if we do go that long, it's just because we want to take the time after we've worshipped to actually be fed by God's word. And so I hope that that will sit well with you if it doesn't. Please, please feel free to be grumpy, but be grumpy on your own. Uh, that's, all I, that's all I can say about that. This morning, uh, so with all of that behind us, this morning we're going to be continuing our studies in Paul's uh, first, second letter to Timothy in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace. And this is part 44 and entitled, Fan It into Flame. And we'll be unpacking 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. These past two Sundays, Brian has, has walked us through the first five verses of 2 Timothy, and he reminded us that, that Paul had met with the Ephesian elders the, uh, way back in Acts chapter 20 and said goodbye to them. 
Paul also warned the Ephesian elders that, uh, that false teachers would begin to work in their midst, and, and those false teachers would draw them away from the faith. And, and that means that by the time Paul writes his first letter to Timothy, the false teachers were already at work there in Ephesus. And if you were here for any of those studies, then you know that that's the case. Brian pointed out that, that 2 Timothy is all about the gospel. And as Brian walked us through the overview of 2 Timothy two weeks ago, it should have become clear to all of us that Paul was once again very concerned about the work of the false teachers as he wrote his second letter to Timothy. He was concerned because the false teachers were continuing their work there in Ephesus even three years after he wrote 1 Timothy. And remember, what caused Paul such concern was that the false teachers were attacking and eroding the gospel. And even more unsettling was the fact that the church at Ephesus were allowing that to happen. And that's when Brian made the point that if the gospel is lost anywhere in the world, there is no hope in that place. And for the sake of, uh, of uh, a, a decent review, let me say that again. If the gospel is lost anywhere in the world, there is no hope in that place. Keep in mind that as we journeyed through 1 Timothy, we often said that the devil cannot take the power out of the gospel. He doesn't have that ability. He can't take the power of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God that saves people. So he consistently settles for the next best thing. Since he can't take the power out of the gospel, he chooses instead to take the gospel out of the church. If he can succeed with that, then the gospel is lost. And when the gospel is lost, all hope is lost with it for that area, for that, for that church, for that family, for whoever it is. So the false teachers were taking away hope from God's people. And I need to understand that if I allow the false teachers to take the gospel away from me, it isn't just my hope that gets lost. My children's hope gets lost as well. And my grandchildren's hope also gets lost. So that means that when I allow the false teachers to steal my hope, I will then in turn steal hope from the generations that follow me. Because when I allow others to take the gospel from me, I cannot pass the gospel along to my family. Again, this is not rocket science. And that thought is something that motivates me in a profound way. When I look to back to the past, I can trace generations of people, literally generations of people on both my mom and dad's side who preserved the gospel in their own lives and protected the gospel as they passed it along to the generations that followed them. I never met either of my grandfathers. I wish I had had that privilege. I never did. And I only met one of my grandmothers, but my older brothers have told me that they, my grandparents, testified that their grandparents and great-grandparents preserved and protected the gospel and then passed it along to the generations that followed them. And that's a significant part of the reason that I'm determined that having received the gospel from my ancestors, I've made it my goal in life to pass along the gospel to my children, my grandchildren, and my great-grandchildren, and the generations to come. It is the passion of my life to make sure that the gospel, in all its purity, is still available to my family and through my family by God's grace until Jesus comes again. And that's the thought that Brian brought back to us last week when he taught us that, that Paul encouraged Timothy to be brave. 
And as Brian pointed out, when we hear Paul encouraging Timothy to be brave, we might think of Timothy as being a weak and effective sort of a guy. But Brian was correct when he said that that simply wasn't true. We know that that wasn't true because Paul chose Timothy to travel with him and often sent Timothy into difficult situations like at Corinth or Thessalonica or Ephesus. And we can be sure that Paul would not have sent Timothy into those difficult and dangerous situations to do all those things in all those places if Paul didn't have confidence in Timothy. But Paul knew that Timothy was also discouraged. And he knew that Timothy was sometimes weary and and that Paul needed to put courage into him. And as Brian said last week, the best way to put courage into someone is to make sure that they know that we think, that we thank God for them and for the work that God is doing in them and through them in our lives and in our fellowship here. And as Brian also pointed out, we need to do that on a consistent basis because as we become more and more consistent in thanking God for other people, our passion and their passion for thankfulness will grow. It might actually become part of the theme of our church. It might actually become the cultural norm here. But when we think about this generational thing, we have to remember that last week Brian pointed out that Paul invested significant time in reminding Timothy that Timothy was a man of faith. And then he pointed out to Timothy that Timothy's faith didn't grow in a vacuum. In fact, nothing grows in a vacuum. Timothy's faith had first appeared in the heart and life of his grandmother, Lois. And she had passed her faith to Timothy's mother, Eunice, and then Timothy's mother and grandmother worked together as they passed their faith along to Timothy. And I have to tell you that last week when Brian was talking about that, I was in tears because I... I don't have to often get to sit next to my wife in church, but last week I enjoyed that privilege. And perhaps you'll remember that prior to the message, since this is, this, this, this is March and it's Michaela Hagen month, perhaps you'll remember that prior to the message, we were highlighting Michaela Hagen's ministry. And you may already know this, but in case you don't, Michaela Hagen is the daughter of Jennifer Hagen, and Jennifer is the daughter of my wife, Faith. Uh, Jennifer's my daughter too, but that doesn't come into the illustration right now. Anyway, as I sat next to Faith after hearing Michaela's ministry being spotlighted, I couldn't help but think about the faith of my wife and how Faith's faith wasn't formed in a vacuum either. Because Faith's faith came from Faith's mom, Rosemary, and Rosemary's faith came from her mom, Emma. From Emma to Rosemary to Faith to Jennifer to Michaela. And let me tell you something that I already know about Michaela. She will pass her faith along to her daughter and to her granddaughter when they come along by God's grace. They will hear the pure gospel as well. Forgive me for saying this, but in the strictest sense of the word, Michaela wasn't born into a family. She was born into a gospel vortex generated by the Spirit of God generations ago. And I'm praying that that divine wind will continue to blow in and around and through our family until Jesus comes again. And I'm challenging everyone here to make sure that the gospel remains pure and available for your family from one generation to the next until we hear the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and all of those generations meet together in the air to be with the Lord forever. And on that day, as we stand before him, surrounded by the generations that preceded us and the generations that follow us, 
all of our families, through all the generations, will stand in the presence of the king and declare as Moses did in Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. My prayer is that that will be true forever for your family. But please know that it will not be true if you're, for your family if you allow the false teachers to take away your hope by taking away the gospel from you and your family. I wish there were a kinder way to say that, but there just isn't. And so with that review in place, it's time to move on to the passage for this morning. And as always, we'll begin to unpack this passage this morning by reading it aloud, standing together if you would. If you're able, please stand with me as we read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Thanks, you can take your seats with a heart of gratitude that God has shared his heart with us through his word. I'm sure that most of you know the story about what happened the day that Elijah, the prophet Elijah, challenged the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel. And if, if you don't know the story, then you could look it up later and, and you'll find it in 1 Kings chapter 18. In essence, it's an amazing story of, of how God used Elijah to not only defeat the prophets of Baal, but to turn the entire nation of Israel back to Yahweh, the one true God. During that confrontation and contest, nearly 450 of the prophets of Baal were executed because they had taught Israel to follow other gods. Now, it's important to know that the king of Israel at the time, a man named Ahab and his wife Jezebel, the queen, were not at all pleased with the outcome of that contest. And that's because Ahab and Jezebel were very committed to worshiping the false god, Baal, and wanted nothing to do with Yahweh, the one true God. So as the story begins this morning, Ahab has just informed his wife Jezebel about what Elijah had done in prompting all of Israel to turn away from Baal. And she's just been informed of the death of those 450 prophets of Baal. And I'm telling you that so that you'll understand what she means in her initial message to Elijah when she refers to what's about to happen to Elijah. With that background, this is the story from God's word from 1 Kings Chapter 19. As we mentioned, Elijah's just challenged the, prophet, uh, the prophets of the false god Baal to a, a duel of sorts on Mount Carmel, a duel that Elijah won by the power of the one true God. The duel ended with 450 of the prophets of Baal being executed, and that's something that ticked off Israel's king Ahab because, as we've mentioned, he was quite committed to worshiping and appeasing Baal despite the way the Lord Yahweh had just proven himself. And that's why immediately after the nation of Israel turned away from Baal and toward Yahweh, Ahab, being the ever-dutiful husband, told his wife Jezebel about everything that Elijah had done there on Mount Carmel, including, including the execution of the 450 prophets of Baal. So Queen Jezebel took it upon herself to send a messenger to Elijah with a message from Jezebel. In the message... Jezebel reflected on the execution of the prophets of Baal, and this is what the message said. 
May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of those prophets of Baal. And in case for you her meaning is lost in her subtlety, what she's saying is, Elijah, you are a dead man walking. And Elijah, the man who, by God's power, has just won this incredible victory, is now terrified by Jezebel's threat and decides to run for his life. He left Mount Carmel and hightailed it to Beersheba, a distance of about 110 miles. And when he got to Beersheba, Elijah left his servant there in that town and went another 20 miles or so out into the wilderness and found a broom bush that was large enough for him to sit under. Plopped himself down on the ground and began to pray that he might die. Lord, he said, I've had enough. So just take my life because I am no better than my ancestors. And having said that, he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Then a very few minutes, an angel appeared and, and touched Elijah to wake him up. And the angel told him quite simply to get up and eat. Elijah looked around and, and right there by his head, there was some bread that had been baked over hot coals. And, and, and there was a, a jar of water for him to drink. And having eaten that bread and, and drunk that water, Elijah laid down again. And that's when the angel came back a second time and told Elijah to eat again. And then said something cryptic. The journey is too much for you. So Elijah ate some more and strengthened by those two meals, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai and the mountain of God. It was a distance of nearly 250 more miles from where, he had, where his journey had begun. When he arrived there, he went into a cave there on Mount Sinai and spent the night. In the middle of the night, God spoke to Elijah and asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah responded with what appears to be a, a, a planned and practiced speech. I have been passionate to the point of being fanatical for the Lord God Almighty, and that's true, despite the fact that the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And as it stands now, I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. So the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Elijah stepped near the mouth of the cave and waited. Suddenly, a tornado force wind hit the mountain that raged with such power that it dislodged and shattered the rocks on the mountainside. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. When the wind had died down, the earth began to shake as a mighty earthquake struck, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, an intensely hot fire swept up and through the mountain, but the Lord was not in the fire either. And then after the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, there came a, a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard that gentle whisper, he pulled his cloak over his face and went and stood at the mouth of the cave. And still in that gentle whisper, God asked the same question of Elijah the second time. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responded with that same well-practiced speech. 
I've been passionate to the point of being fanatical for the Lord God Almighty, and that's true despite the fact that the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And as it stands now, I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. As though God didn't know. And in response to Elijah, God told Elijah to go back the way he came and then continue on to the desert of Damascus, which amounted to a trip of another 700 miles to the north. And then God connect, corrected Elijah's earlier comment by saying, in truth, Elijah, you're not the only man, the last man standing when it comes to the prophets who served me. In fact, God added, in truth, I've reserved more, for myself more than 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's more to the conversation, but in the end, God had made it clear that he had indeed heard Elijah. I say that because God told Elijah that along the way, and this is pretty confusing, but I say that because God told Elijah that along the way, he would meet a man named Elisha. And Elisha would at first serve Elijah, and as Elijah discipled Elisha, Elisha would one day replace Elijah when Elijah's work here on earth was done. And that's the story from God's word. Now, I don't want to understate the obvious, but I think it's safe to say that Elijah was discouraged at the beginning of the story. Did you pick up on that at all? In fact, I don't want to dance with mental health issues here because I'm not qualified, but it seems to me that Elijah might have been diagnosed as being clinically depressed if he were alive today in the 21st century. I say that because of the depths and the duration of his depression. In terms of the depths of his depression, he was at the point of sincerely wishing that he could die. And we know from his extensive travels that that state of mind overwhelmed him for at least seven weeks as his story throughout remained unchanged. He says that he's been showing real passion and, and working his tail off despite the fact that the Israelites had rejected God's covenant with him. They had torn down his altars and they'd been actively seeking out God's prophets and putting them to death with the sword. And he also points out that the situation uh, had been worsening over time and it was now to the point where he, Elijah, was the only prophet left in Israel and they were trying to kill him. Now, can you imagine bumping into Elijah in the hallways of our church and hearing this story as you accidentally, in passing, ask him, hey, how's it going? How you doing? I mean, what would you say in response after you heard that whole story? Have a nice day? I mean, what? how would you send him away having heard what he had to say about what was going on in his life at the moment? But I feel the need to remind you that this deep angst this embedded angst lay deeply entrenched in the man that is spoken of as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets until John the Baptizer came along. In fact, before John the Baptizer was born, an angel told Zechariah, John's father, that John would go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. In other words, Elijah is no wimp. He's a man of profoundly deep faith and courage who still grew discouraged to the point of wishing for nothing more than death. And he remained in that state of mind for weeks until God stood with him and in a gentle whisper brought Elijah's heart back online. 
Now, in the spirit of honoring the context of the passage we're looking at this morning, I want to remind you once again where Paul is coming from at this part of his letter to Timothy. Paul's just told Timothy that he's convinced that Timothy is a man of sincere faith. And the faith that Timothy had had not developed in a vacuum, but had been handed down to him from his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. Timothy was a man whose faith burned brightly. Timothy was also the kind of man who had the capacity to light a fire in other people. Keep in mind, this was a generational thing. Timothy's capacity to light a fire in the hearts of others had come from the intensity of his mother's faith, and his mother's faith had been passed to her by her mother. I wonder this morning if you can remember as far back as January, Sunday, January 29th. I know, or at least I hope that you've slept since then. But, but on Sunday, January 29th, Paul challenged Timothy with something that Paul calls the good confession that Jesus made when he stood before Pontius Pilate. We don't have time to go into detail to what that was all about, but you can go back and listen to part 38 of this series if you need a refresher. In essence, what we said back then was that when Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate, he made a, a confession, a, a declaration, an assertion that helped us to know that Jesus knew that he was not standing before Pilate by accident. And that's because Jesus, oh, listen to this, Jesus was not the victim there on the cross. Sin and death were the victims as Jesus overcame sin and defeated death forever. But in the hours before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus made it very clear to Pilate and to us that he was there because he knew that his death and resurrection was the pivotal part of God's plan for the ages to provide salvation by grace through faith for those who believe. Now, For part of Jesus' life and for most of Jesus' ministry, Jesus understood his death and resurrection would provide that historical pivot point that we've just talked about. But as he stood there before Pilate, the things that Jesus said made it clear to us that Jesus understood why he had to go to the cross. Back the last Sunday of January, we looked closely at everything that Jesus said to Pilate, and we said that Jesus' confession that day amounted to, I know who I am, and I know why I'm here. I'm here to do the Father's will and to finish his work, and no one is going to take that away from me. And the reason that I'm bringing that up now is that back in 1 Timothy, Paul reminded Timothy of the good confession that he had made on the day that he understood who he was and why he was here. On the day that he understood the, the Father's will for him and, and, and the, the purpose of his life was to finish the work that the Father had given him to do. And that was also the same day that he had made up his mind that no one was going to take that away from him. He stood firm on that. And all of that happened on the day that Timothy decided and declared that he would join the Apostle Paul in his ministry and the church leaders there in Derby and Lystra agreed that that was the course that God had chosen for Timothy's life, the life of this very promising young man, as they ordained him, laid hands on him to take on the ministry of discipling, training, and ordaining the elders who would one day lead the churches that Paul and Silas had planted. And listen to me, I can tell you as someone who's had a ministry that's very similar to Timothy's, that does not mean that Timothy was the sharpest pencil in the box. God didn't give Timothy that ministry because Timothy was smarter or stronger or braver than other people. God gave Timothy that ministry as a gift 
of God's grace. Paul was there the day that that happened. And Paul was a first-hand witness to the fire and passion that Timothy had brought to his ministry from day one. And as Paul writes this second letter to Timothy, somewhere around 15 years have passed since that day of Timothy's decision, confession. Paul has picked up on the fact that the, the fire, that, that flame that once burned so brightly in Timothy's heart has begun to flag to and fade to embers. In other words, Timothy's faith and God's gift to Timothy are still there and they're still providing warmth, but for whatever reason, God's gift and Timothy's faith are just not burning as brightly as they used to. And in the same way that God didn't want to see that happen with Elijah, Paul didn't want to see that happen with Timothy. And one of the things that I love about this passage is that Paul is not going to attempt to get Timothy back on track. And he's not going to try to fan the coals of Timothy's faith back to flames. Instead, he's going to encourage Timothy to pick up his faith and use it to fan the flame of the gift of God that had been reduced to little more than hot coals. Look what Paul says in verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. God had a purpose for Timothy's life. And Timothy had at one time been truly enthusiastic as he pursued that purpose, as he pursued the gift of God. But Timothy was tired and needed to fan the flame in his heart back to life just as Elijah had needed that same thing so many years before. So just so we're tracking with what's happening in this passage, Paul's noticed that the fire in Timothy's heart was not burning as brightly as it once did. But, and I think this is an important question, how could Paul see into Timothy's heart? After all, the heart's a very private place, and we're all expert at keeping things locked up in our hearts that we hope and pray no one will ever see. And yet Paul, all the way from Rome, about 835 miles away, has apparently seen right into Timothy's heart, well enough to see that the coals, the embers there in Timothy's heart had died down and needed to be fanned into flame again. Truth be told, none of us has the ability to see into the heart of someone else, but Paul was able to see patterns that had emerged in Timothy's life that were sure indicators of a heart fire that was burning less intensely than it once did. I'd like to suggest this morning that there were three things that had become part of Timothy's character, part of Timothy's life and behavior that proved to Paul that Timothy's heart was cooling off. And those three things, I believe that for whatever reason, Timothy had firstly grown more timid than he used to be. And secondly, Timothy was having difficulty being as loving towards others as he used to be. And thirdly, Timothy was struggling to be as self-disciplined as he had one time been. And I'll go out on a limb here and say that all three of those things in Timothy's life were directly or indirectly a result of all the opposition. Sometimes the violent opposition that Timothy was facing in his ministry. But I don't want you to ground me for speculation, so let me show you why I think that. I partly think those things are true because of what Paul says to Timothy in verse 7 where he writes, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. 
I'd like it if we could compare that verse with Acts 1.8, which says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, the ends of the earth. We unpacked that verse way back in 2015 when we studied the book of Acts together, and we took the time to talk about how the power of the Spirit of God is manifest in our lives. Are you aware that there is a sure test of whether or not the Spirit of God's power is in your life, is manifest in your life? And way back then, we remarked that, that sometimes when we're talking about other people, we may hear ourselves say, well, that person is certainly Spirit-filled. As we pointed out back then and then emphasized when we worked our way through Ephesians, a Spirit-filled person, listen, a Spirit-filled person is nothing more or less than a person who is controlled by the Spirit of God. So when we take, make the observation that a person is spirit-filled or is controlled by the Spirit, more often than not, we make that observation based on how that person behaves when he or she is in church or in a church setting. Some churches will say that a person is spirit-filled because they've been known to speak in tongues or interpret tongues. Some churches say that they know that a person is spirit-filled because they have the gift of healing or one of the other gifts that we th typically think of as the sign gifts. Or we may think of a, of a person being spirit-filled because of the intensity that they bring to their worship or to the way in which they pray. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of, the, of those things that I just mentioned, and I can assure you that there are a wide world of things that the Spirit of God gives us when he becomes part of our lives. But I believe that Acts 1.8 gives us the primary indicator, the primary test, the definitive test as to whether or not a person is spirit-filled. If you look at Acts 1.8 again, you'll see that Jesus doesn't say that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes powerfully into your life and, you'll, and then you'll be able to speak in tongues. He doesn't say that when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you'll be able to worship with a special intensity. But what does he say will happen when the Spirit comes powerfully into our lives? He says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my... Oh, that was rousing. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. The truest mark of the Spirit's power in my life is how willingly and readily I share the gospel with others. And the truest mark of the, the power of the Spirit in your life is how willingly you, willingly and readily you share the gospel with others. And if you think about it, people who are timid are not usually in the habit of sharing the gospel. People who don't love others are not usually in the habit of sharing the gospel. And quite frankly, believers who have little or no self-discipline are not usually in the habit of sharing the gospel with others because, let's be honest, people don't always want to hear the gospel. And it takes self-discipline to share the gospel with others whether or not they might want to hear it. So if I'm timid, if I'm lacking in love, or if I'm lacking in self-discipline, it's pretty likely that I won't share the gospel with people around me, that I won't be a witness. But if I tap into the power that the Spirit of God gives, if I tap into the love that the Spirit of God gives, if I tap into the self-discipline that the Spirit of God gives, then sharing the gospel with other people will become a consistent habit in my life. You will receive power, and I hope you will, you will receive... You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. 
once the Spirit of God becomes part of your life. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that those are the three things that Paul taps into when he tells Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God that was in Timothy as Timothy undertook the ministry that God had designed him to do. But it seems that Timothy's passion for the ministry God had given him had begun to fade, to diminish. And the evidence of that was the fact that Timothy had become more timid, less loving, and less self-disciplined. And earlier, we said that all of that was the direct and indirect result of the opposition that Timothy was facing in his ministry. But that brings up another important question. Why would we say that Timothy's timidity, failing love, fading love and diminishing self-discipline were the direct and indirect result of the opposition that he was facing? Well, we've been saying for weeks now that Timothy's faith didn't grow in a vacuum. It had been nurtured by his grandmother and his mother, by the people in the churches in Derby and, and Lystra, and by the Apostle Paul, who had been discipling Timothy as they traveled and ministered together. And then Timothy went to Ephesus and spent quite a bit of time there discipling the elders of the church there. And we know that Ephesus had become a hotbed of false teaching. And even some of the elders had been caught up with it. We know that from the Apostle Paul that the opposition to his ministry there in Ephesus was sometimes very harsh and even violent. Paul even tells the church at Corinth that he fought wild beasts at Ephesus. And anyone who's ever been in a situation like that knows that when, you, when the opposition to your ministry, your, to your message builds, the first thing that you lose are your courage, your love for others, and your self-discipline. And once those three things are lost, it's difficult, and it can even seem impossible to keep going. And that's what gives such meaning to Paul's encouragement to Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God that was within him. Remember, Paul and Timothy knew one another very well, and that means that Timothy was well aware of the fact that Paul was in prison. And Timothy would have known that Paul was in prison because he would not stop preaching the gospel, the good news about the finished work of Christ his death, burial, and resurrection for us. Paul was Timothy's mentor, and it would have been easy for Timothy to lose his nerve and more when he thought about the Apostle Paul coming to the end of his ministry and the end of his life there in a prison in Rome. All that Paul had done for the furtherance of the gospel, all that Paul had done for those churches, and it all ends in a prison in Rome. And I take all of that from verse 8 where Paul says, so do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And as I read that, I, I kind of wonder if perhaps Paul is working to fan his own flame back into life as he writes to Timothy. Paul loved Timothy like a son. And Timothy was working in a city where the false teachers had done great damage. And by the end of his letter, we're going to see the, the, the church at Eph we're going to see the church at Ephesus respond to Paul's imprisonment and impending death in ways that we would not have expected them to respond. We'll see that by the end of his letter, Paul will ask Timothy to come and visit him there in prison. And he'll ask him to bring a very few important things before winter sets in there in Rome. So ultimately, Paul will ask Timothy to come and visit. But for right now, Paul will be content if Timothy will simply choose not to be ashamed of him as he languishes there in prison. 
Paul wants Timothy to think about how the life of Jesus had ended. As Jesus made up his mind to do the Father's will and to finish the Father's work there on the cross. Let me just remind you that Paul and Timothy and you and I are supposed to be punished because we have broken God's law. But Jesus was punished in our place. Paul and Timothy and you and I are supposed to die for our sin, but Jesus has died in our place. He died instead of us. Paul was in prison because he would not let go of that message. And Paul was concerned that Timothy would become ashamed of his father in the faith. And Paul was even more concerned that Timothy's shame would prompt him to lose the message of the gospel as the false teachers continued to attack him and his ministry. And since we've been talking about how the power of the Spirit of God works in our lives, there's one more little gem that I don't want you to miss. Look once again at verse 8. And as I often ask, I want you to correct me if I read it incorrectly. All right. So don't be ashamed of the, of, a, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the uncaring attitude of God. Join with me in suffering in the gospel by the inability of God to prevent suffering. Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the lackluster heart of God. Doesn't say any of those things, does it? So what does it say? What does it really say? Don't be ashamed of Jesus and don't be ashamed of me, but rather join with me in suffering by the power of God. Or in the words of Jesus, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. The two are inextricably tied together. So the fire that once burned so bright in Timothy's heart has been reduced to ashes and embers in response to the opposition that Timothy's been facing to his ministry and his message. His courage is gone. His love is wavering. Self-discipline is faded. And so Paul writes to, writes to him and pleads with him to fan back into flame the gift that God had given him on the day that Timothy left Lystra and Derby to join the Apostle Paul in preaching and teaching the gospel even in places where people didn't want to hear it. And how does Paul suggest that Timothy fan his passion back into flame? I love this. He tells Timothy to tap back into the power of God. Does that remind you of anybody that we've talked about this morning? How about Elijah as he stood there on that mountainside? What was the first thing that God did? Power! Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine standing there in that cave and seeing all of that happen outside there, wondering what the outcome was actually going to be as the earth shook, as the, as the wind blew, as the fire burned, and then we keep hearing those words. God was not in the, the, the wind, he was not in the earthquake, he was not in the fire, and then comes this, after that incredible display of power, there comes this quiet, gentle whisper. What are you doing here? In light of who I am and the power that I have, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I can tell you, as I, as I studied that passage, the, the story about Elijah this week, and as I studied this passage about Timothy and Timothy's failing faith, the flame that had begun to burn out, God spoke to my heart about being more courageous, about being more loving, 
and about being more self-disciplined, especially when it comes to making sure to relevantly teach and live the pure word of God as we make Christ-committed followers who will make Christ-committed followers in our community and around the world. It's my prayer that the word of God has spoken to you in that same way this morning. Has God's word challenged your heart to be more courageous, more loving, more self-disciplined, especially when it comes to sharing the gospel with the people in your world? God's word has challenged you in that way. And I want to remind you that when the child of God looks into the word of God and sees the son of God, he is changed by the spirit of God into the image of God for the glory of God. God is ready to do that work in your heart just like he's done it in mine. So why not just let him do it? Tap into his power and have it challenge you. Allow it to challenge you to get busy. Sharing the good news with those who haven't heard it. In closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit that God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, we bless your name today for the work of your spirit in our lives. Thank you that your spirit has come powerfully into our lives, that he resides within us and is closer than hands and feet. Thank you that you are there in all of your fullness, that you've brought all of your power, all of your love, all of yourself, everything that you are is a reality now in our hearts and all we need to do, God, by your grace, is fan that flame to life. Send us out into our community. Send us out into this world with the the distinct privilege of sharing the good news with people who who need to hear it even though they don't need to know that they need to hear it. Thank you for the privilege that we have of, of meeting people who are going to be your children. They just don't know it yet. And your intention to use us to make that happen. Help us to be more and more devoted to the message of the gospel. For the sake of your glory, we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. And since uh, 11.15 is approaching rather quickly, thank you for being here today. Thank you for making the effort even though you lost an hour's sleep last night. I know some of you will be trying to recover from this for weeks just because, you know, It's like going to the East Coast and losing a whole hour. What are you supposed to do with that? But as you go out there, keep your eyes wide open. Because there are people out there that are just waiting to hear. They would love to know what you know. They would love to know that thing that you keep hidden so closely in your heart. But don't be ashamed of the fact that you've come to God by faith and allowed Him to save you. Don't be ashamed of those around you who are sharing the gospel and suffering the consequences of it.
Tap into the power of God. Fan that flame back to life. And be as excited about the good news as you were the day you first heard it yourself. Share it with those who need to hear it. And then bring them back here. We'd love to have the opportunity to, to enjoy their fellowship as they've trusted Christ. So with that plan in mind, we've huddled up. We're heading out that door. And all that's left is for me to say, ready? ready. Go get them, Potter's house. <laughs>